The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss an epiphany for a new America. And what are we talking about? Well, recently, I stumbled across something that reminded me of uh, a detail uh, that uh, had escaped me for a long time that I had never put together before uh, with current events, uh, which, which I did, in fact, now. Once again, put, get, put together with current events, and uh, in so doing, I was able to ascertain some of the esoteric concepts associated with this said current event, and uh, I was able to come to some conclusions that uh, we are experiencing, yet again, another ritualistic ceremony of sorts. Uh, and this revolves around the January 6th incident. Remember January 6th, 2021? the world's worst insurrection. <laughs> when you order your insurrection on Wish, this is what you get. Uh, anyway, the whole point here is it's it's this whole January 6th agenda, uh, this narrative that we're looking at. And I was able to factor a couple things together and figure out that uh, there is an occult connotation to this. And there's reasons why they're using this obvious political theater as a means for transforming society in a very real way here in America. Uh, so in order to better understand this, I'm going to uh, read uh, from uh, a work uh, that uh, is written by one of Rudolf Steiner's students. And uh, we're going to begin there, and we're going to jump around to a couple different places here just so you could understand a little better what we're talking about. What does this January 6th bit have to do with anything? Well, <clears throat> this is actually the thing I was reading that had nothing to do uh, with any of the January 6th narrative stuff that's going on out there. I'm not going to do an actual news cycle breakdown of things that happened. I think we're all pretty familiar with the nonsensical nature of all of that. Uh, you know, how it's it's been blatantly shown that uh, many of the people there were... Uh, um, provocateurs and many people there were just led through the lobby and right back out the door and all of the other theatrical nonsense that goes on with an event like that, right? We're not going to touch upon any of that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you why. Why are they using this event and why, how have they encoded this event uh, for the purposes of uh, transmuting society into something different, right? Uh, so let's take a look at this breakdown. And first we'll, we'll start here. And I'm reading from an article called The Threefold Sun, written uh, by, like I said, a student of Rudolf Steiner. And I'm only going to read a very small portion, so you get the idea here. 
The Christ, Son, has united with the earth. That is the event of which we think at Easter. In the holy night of Christmas, we see the child born, who is to become the bearer of the Christ. Every year the Christ child comes again, for the Son comes every year to the point where it is lowest upon its path, that is to say, where it develops least the misleading forces of the heights, and at the same time shines in that hour for the eye of the Spirit without visible light, as sun at midnight. I'm going to pause there, meaning the midnight sun, uh, where its influence affects people without them being able to see it. That's essentially what's being inferred here. Let's read on. And with the Christ events, which begin 30 years after the birth, with the baptism in Jordan on the 6th of January, and then last for three and one-third years, the seed is planted for the second sun to unite at the end of the earth evolution with an earth, which has meanwhile been spiritualized, the seed too for the redemption of the third luciferic sun which unredeemed must consume the earth and i'm going to just drop this reading right there and point out some important ideas to you january 6th is known as epiphany this is the date that uh, christian theologians and christian mystics and the secret society groups folks associate with jesus's baptism by john the baptist in the river jordan and this is an important date because this was the official public start of Jesus's ministry. This was a transformative thing. See, in his 30th year of age, he began his ministry, and he died at the age of 33. Did you ever wonder why 33 is such an important number? Well, this is one of the reasons why, right? And his ministry lasted three, a little over three years. So three and one-third years is what uh, th is said here in this article. So that being the case, what are we in store for in 2024? Hmm? That's what we have to look at now. They're greasing the skids for a, uh, a second advent, so to say. A second American advent. Uh, now I'm going to jump over to another article. This one is from a website called Freemason Information, Masonic Education and Analysis. And this article that we'll read from is called In the Spirit of John the Baptist by Robert Fisher, 32nd Degree, Ancient and Accepted Order of Scottish Rite. Written for The Nineteener, the official newsletter for Minneapolis Lodge Number 19. Reproduced with permission. So, uh, and this was written in 2006. As a candidate becomes initiated into the first degree, he becomes familiar with the Lodge of Masons for the first time. In doing so, he also becomes familiar with the Holy St. John, or rather, two of them, St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist. While consideration of both of them is certainly rewarding, introduction of both is beyond the scope of this article. We will limit ourselves here to an introduction of John the Baptist and leave John the Evangelist for another article. John the Baptist was a powerful personality in his own right and is given a unique role in Christianity due to his precursory relationship with Jesus. 
Historically, John the Baptist was a very popular Jewish religious leader at the time of the Christ. He, his message was peaceful righteousness towards brethren and piety towards God. And he reached out to the lame, the outcast, and the despised, including the hated tax collectors. His ministry resonates strongly with the ministry of Jesus, and a non-Christian Masonic student might admire John the Baptist for prototyping these great teachings. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. John the Baptist, in biblical cosmology, was the forerunner of Christ. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness, right? He was the precursor. He was the one who uh, paved the way, so to say, for Christ to arrive, for the advent of Christ. So what's going on with January 6th? January 6th, folks, is an esoteric representation here of John the Baptist, or this uh, Masonic, or uh, not even so much Masonic, this mystic connotation of John the Baptist. And if you think there's nothing to this, wait till we get to the next article I'm going to read from. It's not really an article, it's an entire book, but I'm going to read just a, a portion of the book, and you can get an idea as to uh, what the connotation is here with John the Baptist and why. Uh, they're invoking this archetype, and it's admitted to be an archetype they're invoking here, uh, as you'll see as we go along here. Why they're invoking this archetype now. It's about transformative change in America. That's exactly what it's about. This is the forerunner. This whole thing is a setup for a new America, folks. Are you ready for it? So come 2024, three years and four months from January 20 for in 2021, Three years and four months, that would set it at uh, May 6th, thereabouts, right? That would be three years and four months, three and, a, three and one third years, because this is, what they, this is what they cite, right? From the time of the baptism from John the Baptist, Jesus' ministry lasted three and one third years. So what are they setting up for us in three and one third years? Well, we know 2024 is an important election year, right? What's going on? What are they greasing the skids for? Because you could see this is an invocation of this archetype uh, to play upon these types of energies. So they're looking at the three and one third years. That would be three years and four months. So three years and four months from this January 6th date of uh, you know 2021 would be approximately May 6th of 2024. So uh, I assure you uh, there's probably going to be some political political upheaval at that point, uh, that's that's going to happen. I don't know what that is. I'm not a person to make predictions like that, but I could just tell you, based upon pattern recognition, uh, what I, I'm seeing here, and uh, this is something that uh, you know really stands out in the esoteric uh, for this kind of thing. But let's continue reading through this article, and then we'll get into the good stuff here. Uh, so stay tuned. Let's let's continue on. <coughs> For the Christian Mason, John's identity and importance is clearly laid out in the Gospels. The story of John's baptism of Jesus is one of the few common accounts in all four Gospels. Going to pause there. Four Gospels. The four pillars, right? The, the firm foundation upon which they build things. Uh, so the story of John the Baptist is that important, uh, not only in Christianity, uh, but also in these esoteric circles for this reason that it's held up by all four of the Gospels. So let's read on. <clears throat> in all the Gospels, 
John denied being the Lord, but acknowledged being one who paved the way for the Lord, and he became one of the first true and outspoken believers in the Christ. This recognition began when, upon John's baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came from heaven as a dove and rested on Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels go a step further and have a voice coming from heaven reaffirm that John's interpretation. This event was the initiation of Jesus' ministry. Going to pause for a second. Initiation. Notice they use the word initiation here. It's always about initiatory rites with these folks. So I assure you this January 6th event, this narrative that they keep pushing, this is an initiation of sorts for the public consciousness to accept a new America, a different America from what we've had in the past. And they're greasing the skids for it now. And uh, depending upon what happens in 2024, uh, we'll, we'll see what direction that goes, right? Uh, so let, let's continue reading here, though. So it says, This event was the initiation of Jesus' ministry. And so John the Baptist holds the unique honor of beginning the story that ends with the cross. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So the story begins with the initiation, the baptism in the River Jordan, and ends with the cross. What are they? What's this crossroads we're coming to in 2024? Hmm? That's what this is about. They're setting us up for a crossroads of sorts. Let's read on. As a Masonic archetype, pay attention to that word, folks, archetype. It's acknowledged right here by this gentleman of the 32nd degree. Uh, so let's face it, he's no slouch and, uh, you know, this was in 2006, so maybe he's he's done something important and was able to, uh, you know, ascend to the uh, honorary 33rd degree title. Who knows? Uh, and move on to different es esoteric schools from there. Uh, as a Masonic archetype, John the Baptist could represent a voice calling in the w from the wilderness. A faithful and outspoken leader devoted to God in a time when many have turned away. The story of John teaches us to bring ourselves into order, emulating those great virtues that the grand architect has designed into the consciousness of humanity and to be receptive to the presence and spirit of peace whenever it may appear. And I'm going to pause there. Who is this grand architect that this guy is speaking of? Well, if you're not familiar with Freemasonry, folks, he's speaking of Lucifer. That's their grand architect, right? And make no mistake about it, Lucifer is not the same as God. They are not worshipping the Creator when they're worshipping Lucifer. Make no mistake about it. This is something different entirely that they're acknowledging, and uh, we may get to that on a future broadcast here. But uh, Lucifer is not God. He is not equal to God. He is not on the same level as God. And even within the esoteric and secret schools, they don't believe Lucifer is God, right? This is a force, a guiding force for these people. Uh, so keep that in mind. But let's read on. To dedicate our lodge to St. John the Baptist admonishes us to be pious leaders among people, but not to become self-centered or to forget our, dual, our due role within this creation. And that's the end of the article here, folks. Uh, so that was written by... 
Robert C. Fisher, 32nd degree of the ancient accepted Scottish rite. Uh, so from there, let's move on. And this is where it gets really interesting. So if you think this is a, a bridge too far, or there's not something to this, I'm going to read to you now the introduction, the beginning uh, portion of a book titled The Mysteries of John the Baptist, His Legacy in Gnosticism, Paganism, and Freemasonry by Tobias Churton. And uh, <laughs> this will be real eye-opening, pun intended here. The Mysteries of John the Baptist. In The Mysteries of John the Baptist, Tobias Churton has produced a remarkably fresh analysis of the Herald of the Messiah. The great value of this book is that Churton provides not only a careful overview of the role of John, as handed down in Christian tradition, but gives us a unique and erudite reanalysis of the role of the Baptist using the lenses of Gnosticism, Freemasonry, and other esoteric traditions that have elevated John to a position equal to or superior to Jesus. Gonna pause for a second there, folks. You hear that? So what does this have to do with modern events? Well, we'll get to that. Let's continue on. It says, this book is a truly invaluable addition to scholarly literature on John the Baptist. And the introduction here was written by the Reverend Jeffrey J. Butts. STM, instructor of religious studies at Penn State University and author of The Secret Legacy of Jesus. Uh, so let's move on down here and we'll get to the acknowledgments. Now pay attention in the acknowledgments here, folks, because this is important. So uh, for those who think this is a bridge too far, I'll lay it out. Uh, in the acknowledgments here, let's read. This book would not have happened but for the kindness and forbearance of the members of the Alexandria Washington Lodge Number no. 22, Alexandria, Virginia. In particular, past master Douglas Wood, former director of communications at the George Washington Masonic Memorial in Alexandria, this famous lodge's warm invitations to me to cross the Atlantic to speak have proved strangely inspirational, this book being the first fruit. Inspiration comes to the prepared mind. A lifetime study of mysticism and esoteric theology was never in my mind supposed to be buried in the esoteric world alone. I always intended to return to the canonical sources with renewed interest and perception, a golden key to open the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Such has been the case. I am reminded of how well I was taught the rudiments of biblical scholarship, both at school and at university. The following names ring out for some for special mention. Divinity teacher Trevor Harding, who encouraged me to return to school with the tantalizing promise of, quote, opening my mind, end quote, after I had left for a craft apprenticeship, age 15. Canon Alaric Rose, rector, fine scholar, bibliophile, and sincere Christian. Canon John Fenton, then theology tutor at Christ Church, Oxford. Old Testament specialist Rex Mason at Regent's Park College, Oxford, and master of ancient Near Eastern texts. 
Professor John Day of Lady Margaret Hall. My wits have been further sharpened by encounters with the late master of Gnostic studies, Hans Jonas, the unforgettable Gillis Quispell, the intriguing provo- intriguingly provocative Elaine Pagels, and the late head of Uppsala University's theological faculty, Jean Arvid Hellstrom. Above all, I thank my late parents, Patricia and Victor Churton. They furnished me with all I needed to embark on a lifetime's theological and mystical quest for truth. That which inspired John inspired them and inspired me. So, what do you think about that? So, this guy... He was urged to write this book and uh, to explore some of these avenues of thought by the Lodge Number 22 in Alexandria, Virginia. Alexandria, Washington, Lodge Number 22, Alexandria, Virginia. Right there in the nation's capital, folks. And uh, I don't think that's an accident. And the events of this January 6th uh, debacle. I don't think are accidents either. I think there's very mystical reasons for it. And, uh, you know, if the name Rex Mason doesn't say it all, <laughs> I don't know what does. Uh, so, uh, anyway, but let's, let's read through the premise, okay? Here in the book, the preface, the preface here. So it says here, I seldom cease to be amazed by the extraordinary wealth of esoteric knowledge to be found in the Bible. That word found is, of course, the key. Seek and ye shall find is a master watchword. Do, do not expect to find anything if you wait to be shown. As I grew up, I was always struck by how much religious instruction came second hand. No one really wants second hand parents. Likewise, we should not be satisfied by anything less than a genuine relationship with the one who draws our imaginations onward to the truth we seek. We need to experience truth in ourselves. If it is not our truth, both gift and possession, it is of little value. Parrot-talking is the language of the moral bigot who knows what is right for everyone else, but does not know himself, fearing exposure to the spiritual light. Laws are walls built to protect us. Spiritual truths are doors to the unknown. Hence, the fear of God is the beginning of all understanding. This is the fear that enables us to enter the unknown. Congregations customarily receive the word. Consequently, the word seldom acquires profound levels of meaningfulness for the receiver. People often hang on to beliefs like talismans, fearing offense, as if the talisman might shatter if touched by the unknown. Has there ever been a society more fearful of causing or receiving offense than ours? The phenomenon suggests to me that our convictions are paper-thin, demanding protection of law. Lawyers do well from it all, but spiritual liberty suffers. Meanwhile, sacred mysteries, pregnant symbols, spiritual doors are bandied about like goods in the vulgar marketplace, like beautiful love songs on the lips of the lascivious. We take religion for granted as if we know it all. We do not. This insight became very clear to me when I decided to investigate John the Baptist. We think we know who he is, but we have missed or we have been misled. A flanker has been pooled, rendering us blind. I hope you can share in my journey for the truth of John the Baptist. And we're going to pause there. That's the end of the preface of the book here, folks. So, uh, some interesting ideas already in mind here. 
So we could see uh, from a little bit of reasonable deduction here, uh, if, if you follow along uh, with uh, what I'm saying here, or if you have eyes to see and you could notice uh, this, this pattern recognition type thing going on, where you could see the Masonic influence in Washington, D.C., you can see all the esoteric influence of these secret society groups, how the hidden hand of power uh, resides there. And uh, you, you understand they were put in a desperate situation. So they invoked this January 6th John the Baptist archetype uh, to set up shop so that they could usher in their new era in three years and four months from now, from that time, actually, I should say. So three and one third years right? The same amount of time that Christ preached on earth, the, the, the time that his uh, ministry uh, actually lasted, because uh, that's, you know, what the, the theology tells us, right? That's what is said. He didn't really begin his public ministry until after he was baptized by his forerunner, John the Baptist. And as you see, as we, you know, had seen here earlier, the, uh, the Freemasons and various other esoteric groups of these secret society groups, they hold John the Baptist at a very high level here, right? They hold this archetype very dear, and they equate him to being equal to, if not superior to, Jesus. They said that in their own words here. This guy said this in his own words, right? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you could kind of see... Uh, there's some importance equated to this idea. Uh, so this is the forerunner. This is the voice calling out in the wilderness, right? Uh, this is a forebear of things to come. Uh, so essentially, what the primary thing I want people to recognize is uh, they're using this archetype to set us up for 2024. And I don't know, like I said, what's coming in 2024, uh, but uh, whatever it is, it'll probably be right around the beginning of May, uh, you know, just in time for Beltane, uh, May 1st, May Day, um, you know, that whole uh, celebrated uh, day of communism, of international communism. Also, the, the birthday of the Illuminati, May 1st, 1776, a uh, professor of canon law at Ingolstadt University named Adam Weishaupt founded the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati and sought to infiltrate different secret society groups and take over governments. So what, what's going on in the world today, folks? Uh, so, you know, in celebration of the, the birthday in 2024 of, uh, you know, the Illuminati around about that time, uh, that, that's what they're setting up shop for here. Uh, something to happen then. So uh, I, I know the general time frame that they're looking for. Uh, it's a, a window of opportunity that they're using. Uh, if there's anybody out there who knows anything about astrology and would like to maybe take a look at uh, what uh, is happening uh, as far as energetic principles from the sky clock uh, at that time, that might be interesting to uh, peruse. I don't have those types of skills, but I do have the pattern recognition here. And I could see that... Uh, this is essentially what's what's been set up with this whole January 6th debacle. They're setting up something for 2024. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure what that's going to be, as I said. But uh, let's read on a little bit more, and maybe we could garner some insights into what else they have in mind by invoking this archetype of John the Baptist here. 
So let's read into chapter 1, the mystery of John the Baptist. Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11.11 I have long been fascinated by the figure of John the Baptist, but did not realize how persistent a fascination this was until I noticed, some time ago, that our home displays no fewer than three portraits of the mysterious prophet. Each portrait tells a different story. Each reveals something different about the man, known to us as a Christian saint, but who, in his own time, was seen as nothing of the kind. Three paintings. They all feature John. Yet they might very well depict three different people, even though two of the paintings are the work of the same artist. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Uh, If you're interested in these paintings, uh, if you look at the thumbnail of the... uh, episode image here. It's the three paintings there in the order from left to right and then the bottom. uh, The large picture, which is uh, credited to Leonardo da Vinci, is the third picture. Uh, So uh, as we go through the chapter here, you you could take a look at those maybe uh, if you have the the image thumbnail in front of you and it might flash across uh, as I'm reading here because it is set up on the slideshow. Uh, So that being the case, just take a a glance at it if you want to know what the author here is talking about. First, we see John as a heroic, muscular, commanding figure. He stands firm, practically naked, towering over the River Jordan with all the force and passion of Poseidon in his natural element. Going to pause for a second there. Notice he hearkens to Poseidon in his natural element. Talking about the water, folks, right? The water. Keep that in mind. Fierce and kind, the Baptist's face and beard are reminiscent of a Sikh warrior and holy man, an inspired guru, one who knows the world and what is beyond it. He has the chest of a Hollywood Hercules, with masterful hands mighty enough to take anyone through anything, from belated baptism to a brick wall. The background figures, by contrast, seem diminished. They appear as sick, curious, censorious, or violently hostile, like townsfolk nervously watching Clint Eastwood stalking a remote main street in a spaghetti western. On a hill, above the people, Jesus reclines. Perhaps insignificant, a sole spectator of the star performance, Jesus observes the scene below. On the shore, a female figure, a self-portrait of the artist, dips her toe into the waters, she sh- should she take the leap, or should she not? Should she join the giant in the water's depth and be transformed, or forever cling to familiar, secure territory? And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Notice he talks about transformation, or clinging to familiar, secure territory, right? Uh, so here we have the invocation of the idea of baptism in water and uh, taking the leap, so to say. Uh, for transformation, to be transformed, rather than clinging to your familiar secure territory, like the bitter clingers that Obama mentioned, right? Those who cling to religion and guns here in the U.S., he, he referred to us as bitter clingers. Anybody that has any kind of moral traditional background or any type of religious background, these ideals, the ideals that made America what it is, these things, right? So that being the case, we, we could hear the, the uh, kind of echoes of the same kind of ideology inherent in there. Let's read on. 
This painting depicts John the Baptist as a figure of massive attraction, at least to the artist. Her watercolor is kind of fan letter. One from the heart, wrought with the pigments of imagination, dipped in the waters of initiation. There it is again, folks, initiation. Always about initiation with these people, right? Let's read on. Recently, I met the artist Louise Ford by chance. Now, a quarter of a century since she had been moved to con concentrate her talent on the Baptist, just what I asked had inspired the work. John Ford, recalled, was for her the man who had gone beyond. He was the man with the guts to step outside of society, regardless of pure disapproval and hostility. Heeding a higher light, a purer voice, he entered the wilderness to live in the wild on what nature alone provided, to go without comforts, subsisting on the spirit, to live out his outsiderness. His consciousness of his difference to the once-born children of matter, with all his strength of endurance. Trusting he had done aright, John demonstrated with actions, as well as words, his willingness to pay the price for his audacity and startling holiness. The John type goes beyond the city walls, the mindset of his time, and the city which thinks it knows all, cannot tolerate him. John tells the truth. He is a voice crying in the wilderness, a cry the artist long ago heard and clearly longed to hear again in the feverish vacuum of our collective anthill. And I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. So listen to how they're describing John the Baptist, okay? He was brave enough and willing enough to step outside of social norms and live outside the system right? He was willing to live outside the system. Well, it seems to me that uh, what's been done here, once again, is they're taking this idea of John the Baptist, right? They're taking this archetype, and they're playing the inversion game once again, because this is exactly the response they don't want from people. They don't want people to step away and embrace their outsiderness, so to say, as John the Baptist did, to go without comforts, subsisting on the spirit, right? Uh, and this is exactly what uh, the, this artist here described as being the the uh, the very desirable traits of John the Baptist. So they're they're playing the inversion game once again. So inverting this principle, they're trying to leverage that in a different direction. Uh, so it seems to me that people in positions of power, uh, these dark occultists that run things, are recognizing the writing on the wall, that they are going to get some pushback from your regular people, and they're doing their very best to leverage these different ideas and force their hand, aren't they? Uh, so let's let's read on here and see what else is said about this, because this is only one portion of thought on this whole archetype, right? And many times these archetypes have various layers of meaning to them. So let's read on here. Louise Ford's second vision of John is very different. Wrought in bright poster paints, the painting attempts to fashion a fresh approach to religious art, a kind of psychedelic spiritualism to capture the spirituality of an event as seen from within.
The chosen moment is the baptism of Jesus at John's hand. Jesus, having taken the, having taken the plunge, has arisen while John also rises from the billowing, quaking waters like a god hewn from a, Greek, from a great ship's prow. The beam of his arm extends to his fellow Jesus. Jesus, no less muscular than his baptizer, stands in a state of sublime reception. He accepts, his arms outstretched, his large hands open, his eyes are closed in mystic union. Above his head we see a divine figure, golden, resembling his physical part, but transfigured. The spiritual figure may be coming from on high, a kind of holy guardian angel from beyond this world, or he may be rising from Jesus' head, signifying an inner experience. The overall impression is one of Jesus himself rising, in travail of fire, air, earth, and water, raised apparently by the power of John's hand. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks, and notice that all four of the basic philosophical elements are outlined here. This is very purposeful, the wording of uh, this description. So keep that in mind, uh, you know, as we had pointed out in the beginning, how the four Gospels also outline uh, the story of John the Baptist and Jesus, how this is a very important thing. And four uh, is the, the key element here, the four basic elements, the four Gospels. All these things equate on various levels uh, throughout esoterica. Uh, types of teachings and stuff like that. So let's keep that in mind. But let's read on here. For all this, we still feel ourselves in the midst of a familiar scene. A scene that has defined John's purpose and his status in Christian tradition. John baptizes Jesus. That is to say, and we are meant to see, John is a secondary figure, one who serves the main event. For ancient Christians who favored what would come to be called the heresy of adoptionism, this baptism signaled the spiritual beginning of Christ's adoption of the mantle of the man Jesus. The man thenceforth served to cloak the transcendent being, a temporary identification of man and divinity. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Let's read that again. This baptism signaled the spiritual beginning of Christ's adoption of the mantle of the man Jesus. The man thenceforth served to cloak the transcendent being, a temporary identification of man and divinity. Uh, so what does this mean exactly, right? Uh, it's talking about um, hiding man's spiritual nature from him, in a sense, doesn't it? That's what we could see going on with this. Uh, so, uh, you know, when uh, when God came to earth in physical form as Jesus, right, uh, he, he cloaked himself, this, this spiritual being, this, this spiritual truth, in flesh, and uh, he was cloaked by this. Uh, so, uh, that being the case, we, we don't see on a spiritual level. We see surely in a, a physical level here in this earthly plane, so to say. Uh, so that being the case, uh, you know, it's it, it's showing the hidden divine nature within man, okay? Uh, man stepped in and, uh, well, Jesus stepped in or, or, you know, the Spirit of God stepped in to flesh and became man as we are. So we didn't recognize him as such, right? We didn't recognize the Spirit. 
uh, at, because he was, you know, cloaked with flesh. But let's read on. Whether today's Christian follows the orthodox or so-called heretical scheme here, John's position is, in either case, incidental. Oddly, we might think John's baptizing of Jesus indicates in Christian tradition not John's mastery, but his subservience. Even the baptism itself is relegated in significance and potency before it even happens. Despite its occasioning, the opening of the heavens, to Jesus' inner vision and subsequent descent of the Spirit of God like a dove to Jesus' head, John's kind of baptism is nonetheless regarded in the Gospels as deficient. Deficient, that is, when compared to that of a greater one to come after him. And I'm going to pause there. And of course, John was talking of this greater one after him to come who will baptize with fire. And that was Jesus, right? Uh, so that's that's what he says here. So let's read on. John's baptism is only of water. Going to pause for a second there. Baptism of water, right? Which foreshadows the baptism of fire. Uh, so once again, let's let's equate this one to one with what we've been talking about. The January sixth event is the baptism of water, and there's a baptism of fire coming in 2024. What this is, I don't know, right? I don't pretend to be able to make predictions, uh, but I do understand uh, patterns, and I understand a little bit of their symbolism and their esoteric language in these kinds of events and things. Uh, so I, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that they have something big planned for 2024. Like I said, don't know what that is, but I won't be surprised when it happens. Uh, but let's, let's read on. Nevertheless, it is difficult to imagine a more effective baptism than this one of John's, a baptism that has inspired artists for nigh on 2,000 years. The event is capped by nothing less than a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This divine endorsement of Jesus' significance, apparently a conflation of Isaiah 42.1, Psalm 2.7, and Genesis 22.2, is a statement of religious reflection. Jesus, the Son of God, has come after John. Whatever one might make of this account's historicity, John's part in the story is apparently done. Having prepared the way in the wilderness, John ought to retire gracefully. Jesus has no further need of him. The Baptist is redundant. His baptizing the one after him is John's spiritual swan song. Exit John, enter Jesus. In spite of the early church's determination to ensure that John's significance be confined to that of a herald or, if I may say, warm-up act for the big star, a great mystery about John, the real John, persists. And I'm going to pause there mystery. See that they always tie all these things in mystery. This is relating back to the mystery schools of antiquity. This is all about this secret esoteric work, right? All, all of these ideas. So they, they've, they've adopted this figure of John the Baptist and adapted it as an archetype to represent various things. Uh, so that's essentially what they're talking about here. But let's, let's read on here. That mystery kindled the imaginative genius of Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo painted the third image of John that has hung in my home for many years. 
Well, Leonardo's original John the Baptist now hangs before the public in Paris's Louvre Museum 500 years ago. Its viewing required an invitation to the private apartments of Francois I, King of France. Captivated, perhaps haunted by the Baptist, Leonardo's royal patron would state sorry, would stare in timeless contemplation into John's enigmatic eyes and androgynous form. The painting became a true icon for the king, a window into the beyond. I have been similarly bemused by this great work of art, painted between 1513 and 1516 when Leonardo was in his early 60s. It is perhaps Leonardo's last testament in paint. So remote from the image of the unshaven Hebrew prophet, Leonardo's depiction of the Christian saint is peculiar. Emerging from blackness, the beautiful figure suggests nothing so much as a pagan come-on issued from the cheeky girl boy face who has borrowed his all-knowing smile from the expressive palette of the Mona Lisa and his left obscure and decidedly serpentine arm from the neck and head form of Lita's divine impregnating swan, also painted by Leonardo. John's right arm, meanwhile, makes a dramatic gesture, crossing his chest, bending at the elbow to make a square, then pointing sharply upward to heaven, presumably. The four-figure gesture is as visually dynamic as Michelangelo's near-meeting of the creator's index finger and that of Adam on the Sistine Chapel's ceiling. And I'm going to pause for a second there. So he's invoking these other different artworks that have various inherent esoteric meanings to them, right? There's hidden meaning in all of these, and the symbolism's there. And I think he's going to answer a little bit here uh, in the next portion, so let's read on. What does it mean? Is there a naughty, anti-clerical double meaning or joke inherent in the finger gesture? John's model may have been Leonardo's scurrilous pupil nicknamed Soleil or the Little Devil, so that the gesture may be taken on one level as a lewd one. Up your ass, Leonardo's use of the pointing gesture is, however, a recurring sign in his religious art. But what constituted Leonardo's personal religion, if anything? The slender reed cross was added later. Was it a, a sop to theological propriety? Though not detracting overmuch from the painting's central action, the cross was probably added to bring Leonardo's puzzling image into sec securer doctrinal waters. The cross declares this John is a Christian. And talking of waters, there are none to be seen. This Baptist has nothing to baptize with save his eyes, and that suggestive gesture we cannot quite decipher. So strong, indeed, is the pagan, sensual, classical feel of the depiction, rendering it practically unusable, at least at the time. In obviously sacred contexts, we can hardly escape wondering if Leonardo did not see something else hidden in the orthodox biblical picture of John underlining the ambiguous and arguably pagan inspiration of leonardo's john is the existence of a similar work thought to have been painted between 1510 and 1515 by a follower of leonardo from a drawing by the master the painting has a dual identity it is known both as saint john in the wilderness and as bacchus the god of religious ecstasy wine and intoxication and i'm going to pause there folks once again you see the dualism principle 
And uh, you'll notice in the article we read before we got into the heart of the book here, uh, he was talking about uh, when you're introduced to Freemasonry, well, you hear about John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, right? Uh, so uh, there's your twin idea again, the duality principle. Uh, so once again, we have this whole idea. Uh, so this, this creates this uh, dichotomy uh, between the figure of John the Baptist and now de uh, declaring uh, the same thing and making uh, a, a comparison to Bacchus, right? To the god Bacchus. So uh, let's, let's continue on and see what else the author here has to say. Originally a variant on Leonardo's conception of the Baptist, some curiosus in the late 17th century chose to add vine leaves to the figure's head and leopard spots to John's hairy loincloth. A vine wreath added to the Baptist's former staff transformed it into a Bacchic thyrosis. I'm not sure what that word is, thyrosis. <laughs> Dionysus's sacred staff born by his wine-intoxicated followers. Okay, going to pause there. That's what a thyrosis is. It's a, a sacred staff, right? Uh, so he transformed this staff into, uh, you know, the, the staff representing the Bacchic idea or the Dionysus idea. So uh, the, the comparison's been made here between John the Baptist uh, being a representation of the same type of archetype as Bacchus or Dionysus uh, in this context here by Leonardo. Uh, so once again, you, you see the dichotomy here, right? Uh, so let, let's continue reading. Dionysus's sacred staff, borne by his wine-intoxicated followers. That's what the thyrsus is. According to Euripides, the thyrsus dripped with honey, a not insignificant detail, as we shall see. We may naturally ask whether this iconographic vandalism resulted from pious outrage at a sensual St. John or whether it was derived from positive insight into the figure's pagan provenance. And I'm going to pause there. I would say it's probably inspired by the uh, the pagan provenance of the, the figure of the painting here. Uh, I'm sure those inferences were, were intended, right? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was no slouch. Let's put it that way. Uh, he was not only a genius in the scientific realms of things, uh, but he also understood the metaphysics and, uh, you know, philosophy and all of these different ideas, theology. And he, he was definitely a student of the mysteries, folks. No doubt in my mind. Uh, let's, let's read on. We cannot leave this maverick image of John Bacchus without noting that the characteristic da Vincian finger gesture is stranger still. The Bacchic or Dionysian John, if we may call him such, has his right forefinger pointing up at 45 degrees across his chest, while his left forefinger points down vertically to the earth. And I'm going to pause there. So what are we implying here? As above, so below, right? That, that's always the same thing with these secret society type people and these artists. As above, so below. One finger pointing up, one pointing down. So, you know, we could understand and make that, uh, that inference here. So let's read on. With the figure's left leg drawn across his right knee at a right angle to the staff, there is the suggestion of some geometrical conceit, 
But any suggestion of an injunction to accept the famous pointedly hermetic principle as above, so below, indicating magical links between heaven and earth, is nullified by the fact that the figure's right hand does not point directly upward, as in Leonardo's more famous painting, but at an angle as though referring to something off or right of canvas. The gestures baffle, but they do not compel, as in the single-finger gesture of Leonardo's own finished work. And I'm going to pause there. So, just because he's pointing at a 45-degree angle, uh, that doesn't indicate the as above, so below? Is it maybe uh, pointing to something else? Hmm? Well, could this be uh, a, a deliberate... Uh, play on this archetype this john the baptist archetype could it be an inversion principle going on it's it's very possible folks i mean th these kind of things are um leveraged all the time by these people in positions of powers for various reasons so let's continue reading here because now we're going to get into the crux of the matter here john as divine mercury Renaissance philosophy reveled in allegories, visual and literary puns, dynamic riddles, and multiple meanings. Renaissance man sought unity of being through the diversity of the world. He confronted chaos and disorder with a faith in hidden harmonies and higher orders on which he depended and with which he could operate. Symbolic links between the pagan gods of the classical period and corresponding principles perceived in the church's approved biblical figures were not only highlighted for moral and philosophical uplift, but in many a learned in-joke sported with. At least one of these correspondences may illuminate some of the mystery of Leonardo's John the Baptist, if not the mystery of the Baptist himself. Less than a decade before Leonardo painted his late masterpiece, the considerably less talented German artist Conrad Celtes adopted the then-current fad of presenting biblical figures as pagan deities. Celtes produced a woodcut wherein, among other obvious correspondences, the goddess Minerva appeared as Mary, while the Greek god Hermes appeared as a straight stand-in for John the Baptist. There was no mystery or allegorical depth to this cross-identification of John and Hermes. Celtes simply hooked into the idea of Hermes as the divine messenger and made the not very startling or not very original identification of John Hermes by reference to the ecclesiastically acceptable understanding of John the Baptist as revered forerunner or herald of Christ, the one crying in the wilderness. Once appreciated, however, the link of John to Hermes turns out to be highly suggestive. And I'm going to pause there. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Uh, like I said, if they're equating the idea of John to Hermes or to Mercury, the messenger idea, uh, also the trickster archetype in some instances, uh, we, we could see how this is very much, uh, when we associate the January 6th event with this, it's very much setting up something else to come in the near future, right? And uh, it, it actually will tell you, uh, you know, the approximate time. Uh, like I said, uh, when we're looking at these archetypes, we can infer various things. And the inference here is uh, with John the Baptist having baptized Christ, and then Christ's ministry lasted three and one-third years, then we know that this event was a harbinger, was, was the uh, 
equivalent of the archetype of the baptism, so to say, of America. Uh, so uh, the culmination of what this started, or the crossroads, or ending at the cross, so to say, uh, is inferred to happen three and one-third years later. So like I said, I can't emphasize this enough. Look for something to happen in May of 2024. Uh, and I don't know what that is, but uh, I could just tell you from the things I know about uh, the communications these secret society groups use and the various ideas they use, I could see the pattern, and the pattern's there. Uh, so they're, they're keying up for something, and I know that's a big election year and everything else. Uh, so who knows? Who knows? But uh, let's continue reading. I don't want to get too hung up there uh, because there's still a couple of important points here that we're going to point out before we close it up. So, in ancient times, the herald or ambassador, the Greek word being kirux, enjoyed an important presiding role at official ceremonies. Like the god Hermes, the herald was the mouthpiece of the sovereign power, the messenger with the message. In Leonardo's day, Hermes was not understood simply as the classical divine messenger with wings on helmet and feet, a kind of Olympian mailman. He was also seen as the divinity active within Hermes Trismegistus, thrice great Hermes, the divine philosopher par excellence and legendary giant of patriarchal science. Thrice great Hermes, today we might say super mega awesome Hermes, was thought to have been a kind of incarnation of Hermes the god, as well as being the prophet Moses' human contemporary and even inspiration. And I'm going to pause there. And that's an important idea right there as well. Uh, so they're equating uh, you know, Hermes, Trismegistus, to Moses, right? And we see so many of these ideas. Uh, that cross uh, different cultures and different uh, uh, different mythologies, so to say, and different uh, types of theologies and things like that. How many of these figures, the names are changed, right? And they they represent different things. So Moses, in uh, you know the esoteric terms, represents something other than uh, what the the Bible offers. Now the stories all align in various ways. Uh, but it's the overarching archetype that's important here. So they're, they're equating this, this Hermes idea back to Moses as well. So let's read on. Writings attributed to thrice great Hermes were collected together as the Hermetica. Much later Latin versions of the Corpus Hermeticum were also called the Pimander or Divine Pimander. These were named after the first treaties in the collection, called in the Greek the Poimandries, first printed in Treviso, northern Italy, in 1471, the Pimander revolutionized Renaissance thinking, pointing the way to the divine mind through inner ascent to the heavens. In fact, since at least the 14th century, Hermes had been known as a kind of honorary patron of Freemasons, the master masons of Freestone. A paternal status Hermes had anciently enjoyed in the world of alchemy, the art of chemical transformation and first foundation of modern chemistry. In alchemical recipes, Hermes often played the role of psychopomp, leader of souls across the waters of corruption and decay to rebirth and psychic integration. I'm going to pause there for a second, right? 
Uh, well, hold on. Let me finish the sentence. I'm going to read that sentence again, and then we're going to pause and break that down a little. Hermes often played the role of psychopomp, leader of souls across the waters of corruption and decay, to rebirth and psychic integration, a spiritual physical ascent master. And I'm going to pause for a second there. So, did you catch that? He leads souls across the waters of corruption and decay to rebirth and psychic integration. So uh, that's essentially what's being done to Washington, D.C. through this January 6th narrative, right? We, we've understood for a long time now that our government is corrupt and decaying, and our country is right now falling apart. Uh, it, it really truly is. I mean, look at the state... Of, of things here today. It's a planned demolition, essentially, uh, that's going on. They're demolishing America, and they're doing this on purpose. And, and this is why they're looking for this rebirth idea. Once again, the baptism in fire, so to say. Uh, and I, I clearly expect that uh, this uh, January 6th event was the herald of this uh, rebirth, so to say, which will come in 2024. And uh, how exactly this will you know, happen. I don't know. It remains to be seen, and I sincerely hope I'm wrong about all of this and that we could actually repair our country and our constitution and uh, uh, live by the premises that were originally intended by the founding fathers here and be able to restore our republic to what it once was or even to something better, right? Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if that's the case. We'll see. We have this short window of time where they're trying to burn the whole thing down, aren't they? Uh, to rebuild it, uh, you know, build back better. Uh, that, that's what they're saying. They, they want to build it back better. Well, what their idea of better and what our idea of better are two different things, aren't they? Uh, so uh, this is where it's, it's very important uh, for all of us to uh, really step back into our sovereignty and take control here uh, of our lives and of our communities once again. Uh, because th this is the important aspect of this that we need to be aware of. They're trying to leverage these occult archetypes in various ways against us, and I always caution people against this. So if you are aware of this, you are not as affected by it, right? If you know this is what they're doing, this is the trick they're using, right? This is the old magician's trick they're using. They're leveraging archetypes against us, mythologies. In this case, they're using the idea of John the Baptist, and in so doing, this is equated back to the Hermes idea, once again, right? You, you see that, the mercury, the alchemical transmuter, uh, right? The alchemical mercury. Uh, this, this is the vehicle by which they're going to try to invoke transformation in our country. Uh, let's continue on, because I think there's some more important points uh, hidden in here as well. Let's read on. It was thought that the souls of metals could be acted on by appealing to higher spiritual influences. Man, too, was a metal with hidden virtue or power. Going to pause there, folks. Okay, listen to that once again. Okay, so it was thought that the souls of metals, M-E-T-A-L-S, could be acted on by appealing to a higher spiritual influence, man too, was a metal with hidden virtue or power. Uh, so once again, this comes down to the alchemical idea of transmuting lead into gold, right? 
and and this is the kind of thing they're they're viewing us uh, in in this way. They're taking a look at the context of spiritual alchemy in a sense here, uh, but also in another sense, uh, they're equating our worth to that of metal. So, what kind of metal are you worthy of? Are you uh, something that's that's backed by value, like gold or silver? Or are you some other type of metal which is not very useful to them? And this is how they view us in many ways. They regard us as human resources. See? And there's there's a very real reason why they, they utilize these types of ideas and, and look at these things with these types of uh, philosophical connotation. Uh, so we see here... it. it once again, pertains to alchemical ideals and stuff like that as well. But let's not get too hung up on that point and continue on. And we're almost done. Stick with me for a little while longer. The Hermetic writings available to Leonardo were composed in the early centuries of the Christian era, probably in Egypt, though nobody in Leonardo's time thought so. They were considered as either antecedent to or contemporary with the philosophy of Moses. The Hermetica appeared to prophesy the Son of God, Jesus. Hermes also spoke of a herald. In Corpus Hermeticum the Fourth. this herald was sent by God to mankind with a bowl of noose or divine mind in which men could be baptized if they chose to heed the call and accept the offer of gnosis or higher divine knowledge and consciousness. The mixing bowl, or crater, in which the willing initiate could be baptized also enjoyed an alchemical meaning. We see here an obvious link between John the Baptist and the Hermetic Revelation, John as Baptist, or spiritual operator, and agent of transformation. I'm going to read that last sentence again and think very carefully on these words, folks. I hope you're following along with this. Uh, I, I hope that you could catch the connotations in here and understand what's being leveraged. I'm going to read that again. We see here an obvious link between John the Baptist and the Hermetic Revelation, John as Baptist, or spiritual operator and agent of transformation. Uh, so let's pause there for a second. So uh, the agent of transformation, January 6th. This whole narrative they're pushing is an agent of transformation, folks. That's what it's all about, right? So this is the spiritual operator, in a sense, right? Uh, this is what they're doing. They're trying to invoke alchemical concepts to change the world mind or change uh, the spirit of America. They're trying to imbue it into something else, right? Uh, so, And they, they speak of this mixing bowl, this giant mixing bowl, this alchemical uh, flask of sorts, right? right? Let's read on. Perhaps you have seen old alchemical images of the hermaphroditic male-female Rebus, the divine child of the mysterious conjunction of the divine sun and the goddess moon. The Rebus was usually illustrated as being masculine on one side and feminine on the other, sometimes rendered as a king and queen in one body. The hermaphroditic Rebus symbolized the combination of contrary or opposite principles at a higher level of chemical transformation processes. The very word hermaphrodite calls us to observe a spiritually generative conjunction of the god Hermes and Aphrodite. Mind and beauty, where mind is both lunar 
and mercurial, and beauty, both solar and Venusian, an ecstatic combination. Thus, the apparent androgyny or hermaphroditic quality of Leonardo's Baptist may reflect experience of the hermetic androgyne, who points the way to a higher state of being and consciousness. Is this a pointer to a way back to a lost primal condition from which man had fallen, or a way forward to an evolutionary destiny? It is both. One byproduct of the way is the perception that masculine and feminine characteristics will no longer be perceived as being at odds, but unified in joyous harmony, a return to the one. Leonardo was perhaps looking ahead to a new age. His John pointed the way. And I'm going to pause there. What do you think all this gender confusion nonsense is about in this day and age, folks? There's a very real agenda behind it. (coughs) Now, not to... uh, you know, belittle anybody that falls in that category. Uh, There's always been uh, those those types that don't fit the the normal molds of uh, what the genders have been throughout all ages. But it's a very, very, very small percentage of people. And in many cultures, they were regarded as being something special per se. Uh, But there's a clear agenda going on that is artificially pushing people into this type of a mindset right? It's a push of two people. It's an agenda being played out on people's minds. People are being engineered to try to fit into that mold, and it's not satisfying for them because it's not natural. Uh, And many people are experiencing uh, a lot of heartache and pain because of this agenda that's being pushed on them and may not realize what's being done to them. Uh, it's, It's become... The normalization process of this is a perversion of these old alchemical ideas, right? That's what's been done here, all right? It's trying to apply physical, in the physical realm, these things that are very spiritual type ideas, all right? It's about the the balance of the masculine and feminine within the soul, folks, not the physical body. And they've perverted these things to, uh, you know encompass the physical body or the physical form, right? They've taken the idea that is a spiritual idea and they've turned it into gross matter, essentially here. That That's what's happened. Uh, so this is a perversion and this is one of the reasons for it uh, because uh, many of these secret society groups uh, through the course of time have perverted many of these ideas, these original concepts, and misconstrued them, and many of the teachers have brought these forward through these secret society groups and are using them to steer people's, uh, you know, consciousness in different ways. And this is one of the things that, that goes on, and that's that's just one of the uh, kind of subplots that goes on along with this. But uh, let's not get hung up on that. Let's, let's uh, continue on here, and we're almost done. French king, Francois I, who liked to visit Leonardo's apartments at the royal chateau at Amboise in the Loire region, stated privately that Leonardo had been not only the most outstanding genius of art and science, but a uniquely gifted philosopher as well, a man to enlighten a king. Did the king get the message? If he did, he kept it to himself. That Leonardo's John emerges from blackness, and it says in parentheses, ignorance, 
may also be significant. And I'm going to pause there, but I would also say blackness usually represents Egypt, right? Uh, the land of Egypt, which uh, is the uh, in in different esoteric philosophy and different uh, alchemical teachings, Egypt or the blackness. This represents your uh, base animal nature, and if you um, if you transcend out of Egypt, if you come out of Egypt, uh, this is an elevation, a spiritual elevation into the head, right? Uh, this is what they say. This equates uh, in the, the, the human body. Uh, Egypt, or the blackness, would equate the sacrum, right? The sacrum, the area uh, in your body uh, of the pelvic region, so to say, the sacrum. Uh, so this is representing the, the animal nature in man. Uh, whereas to come out of Egypt is to elevate uh, to the head, to the uh, the apex, right? The mind. Uh, so uh, these different principles, they, they play across all different uh, types of, of arcana, so to say, and, and various esoteric forms of thought and, and teachings. Uh, but that's that's essentially what's what's being imbued here. Uh, so that being the case, uh, let's let's continue on because he says that Leonardo's John emerges from the blackness or ignorance may also be significant. The lowest or primary stage of the alchemical art was called the negrito or blackness, from which low material state that transformative principle, sometimes referred to as the stone, redeemed the secreted gold or hidden virtue of alchemical potential. And I'm going to pause there. Yes, this idea is bound up in alchemical principles. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's important to realize that uh, even the very term alchemy comes from alchem, uh, which is Egyptian and means the black, right? Uh, so this is the blackness, the negrito process. Uh, this is through the destruction or the burning process when you burn something. Uh, it, when it becomes that black ash, that's the negrito process. When it burns no more and it's become the black ash. This is the negrito. This is the destructive principle. Uh, and it's it's necessary in rebirth and transformation through alchemy. Uh, so, And this is why it's equated to Egypt, right? The land of Egypt. Well, you know, that's the land of, you know, just the base animal nature. Uh, so if you're looking for spiritual elevation, you need to come out of Egypt. Uh, as many of the stories uh, in the different uh, philosophies and, and, you know, religious contexts would point out. Uh, but let's not get hung up on that point. Let's read on here. So where did we leave off? Okay. We are thus at liberty to see Leonardo's John the Baptist as an image of the hermetic principle of spiritual and material transformation, the ascent of man to a higher stage of psycho-spiritual awareness. Leonardo's John is therefore not only transformer, but transformed, herald, and initiator. He is a kind of Christ, symbolizing a higher principle, the divine self. He knows. We have come a long way from the image of John the Baptist up to his knees in the Jordan torrent, baptizing Judeans and calling out from the wilderness for national repentance. Or have we? 
I might have thought so until I received an invitation that arrived on the wings of cyberspace around Easter 2010. It was not an invitation to a mixing bowl of noetic baptism, nor to an alchemical wedding. I was invited to bring my own bowl of inspiration to the presence of the Brethren of Alexandria, Washington Lodge No. 22, Alexandria, Virginia, in time for their annual St. John the Baptist Day Feast at Gadsby's Tavern in Alexandria. The date, June 24th, traditional birthday of St. John the Baptist. Alexandria Washington Lodge No. 22 is no ordinary Masonic Lodge. It is one of the oldest free and accepted Masonic Lodges in the United States and is famous for once having enjoyed as its master General George Washington. The Lodge meets today at the remarkable George Washington Memorial in Alexandria, an architectural wonder paid for by Masonic subscription and modeled on the more ancient wonder of the world, the Pharos or Lighthouse of Alexandria, Egypt. Inspired by the thought of a modern lodge that linked the light of ancient Alexandria to the modern world and that still honored the age-old link between masonry and St. John the Baptist, the theme for my proposed address came immediately to mind. Would it not be appropriate to delve into just why it was and is that the figure of St. John the Baptist holds a special place in Methonic mythology? Sorry, in Masonic mythology. I anticipated a fairly routine investigation into the usual Masonic sources, with a pleasant mixture of entertainment and, hopefully, a sprinkling of enlightenment for all. I was in for a surprise. Though dimly aware that there was more to St. John the Baptist than met the eye, I very soon found my researches taking an unexpected path. What had begun as a literary peregration into obscure folklore quickly grew beyond the bounds of a 45-minute celebratory address into a compelling journey into the shadows of history. Whether I have emerged from the darkness with pearls rather than chimeras of little worth, I must leave for the reader to decide. As the quality of baptisms may certainly differ, so everyone's John will not and cannot be the same. I hope, however, that at the end of this journey you will feel you know something of value about the man whose greatness Jesus is reported to have declared unsurpassed by any man born of woman. And that's the end of chapter 1, folks, and that's where we're going to end it tonight. So, do you think it's a coincidence still? Do you think it's it's all coincidental that, uh, you know, this uh, Lodge number 22, uh, the number of the master builder that was, you know, at one time headed by George Washington himself in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, named after Alexandria, the lighthouse of Alexandria, and, uh, you know, this uh, Masonic Lodge having this representation of the lighthouse, the light of Egypt, folks. Uh, there in Washington, D.C. Do you understand what we're talking about? Uh, are you b- beginning to draw the connections here between John the Baptist and January 6th? January 6th uh, being the Epiphany, the day of the Epiphany, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. Uh, and uh, this was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to be culminated in three and one-third years. Uh, at the cross, 
at this major event that changed the world fundamentally? Do you understand the archetypes being invoked here? Uh, do you understand that, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. is a Freemasonic town? Hmm? Uh, do you know that it was developed and built uh, in very specific patterns uh, to represent Masonic ideas? Do, do you understand all of this? Do you understand all the hearkening back to ancient Egypt? Uh, do you know why these things are the way they are? Uh, could you see the writing on the wall here? They, they've uh, they've really begun to really invoke this archetype uh, for a transformational process here that began on January 6th, 2021, and will culminate sometime in May of 2024. And exactly what that looks like, I don't know. Uh, but understand, it will be uh, something similar to uh, a crossroads event, uh, perhaps a baptism in fire rather than in water. Uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not a predicting man, uh, but uh, I, I understand their language, I understand their symbology, and I understand the patterns that they use, and I see the pattern recognition here. I understand the allegories and the, the allusions they make to certain things, and the writing's on the wall here, folks. They're up to something. And it's, it's going to be something big. And uh, I, I could tell you, and, and that's the most important message I could get across here, the general time frame of it, it will arrive sometime in May of 2024. And what exactly it is and how it looks and what's all involved, I can't say. I really don't know. But uh, I, I do recognize the language. And this is the important thing. And you guys can do this too. It just takes a little bit of taking, picking up books and, and studying and reading some of what they say uh, and, and coming to understand their doctrines, right? They teach this secret doctrine all throughout these different secret society groups. And they've infiltrated themselves into various governments and businesses and uh, positions of power in this world. And uh, the vast majority of them don't really know uh, what's going on. But they, they do recognize some of the language, and they know to prepare for certain things. Uh, I'm sure some of them probably that are in the know have also recognized this same thing going on. And we're able to put two and two together and are preparing for something big then. So what this looks like, like I said, I don't know. I'm just out there uh, trying my best to sound the warning bell on these things and make people aware that uh, this is what's been communicated, right? This is what they're communicating. Do you think there, there's not a, a reason that they decided just the other night that they're, they're going to broadcast on primetime television across all these different networks uh, this January 6th hearings publicly? Like, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this happen, where we have this, this broadcast uh, on these, these various networks about an event such as this, a congressional hearing as such. They're up to something big with it, folks, and they're trying to affect the minds of the masses very greatly. Uh, so we need to be aware. And if you're aware, then you will likely be less affected by this. And I'm hoping just by sounding the warning bells here that uh, uh, maybe many other people will be able to pick up on this and we could maybe uh, be able to uh, alter the outcome here and make something better out of the whole thing than what the intention is. Uh, because you know as well as I do what they intend, right? Uh, 
You know it's all about a digital panopticon control grid that leaves you with no freedoms, no way to operate outside of their system, uh, tied to a computer 24-7 in an endless cycle of debt and misery, right? This, this is exactly what they want and what they're going for. And uh, we need to be resistant to that, to understand that and say no. Remove our consent from their system and their whole house of cards falls. The thing is, they're trying their very best to coerce people, uh, to condition people into accepting their terms of their offer. And we need to just be able to say no. Uh, and I think they're beginning to worry because many people have woken up to the nonsense that's happened these past two years. They're starting to question things more than ever. And, uh, you know, all their attempts to thwart this great awakening don't seem to be working out so well for them, or not as well as they had, had thought anyway. Uh, so it's important that we look at these ideas. And I know some of this is maybe a bridge too far for some people. Uh, but I assure you, they, they definitely utilize these archetypal ideas, these mythologies, uh, these allegories, these, these old stories, right? Uh, they, they definitely utilize these as a way to leverage social energies. So this is what they're doing. And they're invoking that archetype, the epiphany of John the Baptist and the epiphany, the day of epiphany. That's what it was called in you know christian theology epiphany that that day that uh, christ went was baptized by john the baptist and uh this the heavens opened and the spirit of god descended on him like a dove and said this is my son in whom i am well pleased right this is this represents an ascension a a whole different uh, direction and if they're trying to invert uh, this idea of this awakening by trying to turn it into something more physical here than you know spiritual and trying to leverage that idea then uh, we, we could see uh, just based upon the language used by these these freemasons and stuff who are studying john the baptist who seem to think that he is greater than jesus at least equal to if not greater than jesus so th this is essentially their their way of binding these different sp spiritual ideas to physical things. It's a binding idea. It's about binding to the physical, to the hyper-material. Binding everything in these material terms. And that, I think, is essentially what they're trying to leverage here. Uh, they, they don't want people to awaken spiritually, so to say, and recognize these things for what they are. It's all about binding man's mind into the gross material. And that's, that's what they've been up to. And I think, you know, this is a further push for that. Uh, but anyway, that's, you know, the whole premise here. Uh, when you see all this January 6th nonsense going on, all these hearings and all this, uh, you know, here it is on primetime national television, on every different network and stuff like that, understand when you see them doing something like that, this is social engineering of the highest degree. You don't just put a congressional hearing on primetime television. Never been done before, as far as I know, in the history of our nation. Right? Never been done before like this. Uh, they're, they're setting up for something else. Uh, and, you know, like I said, we, we could see by analyzing the esoteric uh, aspects to this and understand the principles, the, the energies, the energetic principles of the archetypes they're invoking here. 
uh, we can understand what they're trying to accomplish. It's all about ushering in their new world order, right? As always. Uh, and, you know, it's it gets tiresome to talk about after a while because we've known about this for a long time. And like I said, I'm not going to break down specific points of things that were said at these hearings or, you know, things that are said, the stories that are told about the event itself, which is kind of a joke in my view. I think everybody understands that it's it's theater. The vast majority of what happened there was theater, right? Uh, I think we understand that. And that they are definitely uh, trying to make it look as if something real went down there. But uh, it, if this was a real insurrection, it was the stupidest, most useless insurrection ever planned, if that's the case. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's really, really beyond the pale. Uh, we know how these things work. Uh, you can see the contrivance there, but make no mistake about it, they're still trying to leverage this anyway, regardless of whether people think the whole thing went down as they claim or not. Uh, I think that's more the reason. It, it's just to add to the, the whole political theater of it all, right? And, and it's done to leverage these esoteric archetypes, uh, these different ideas. And if you think this stuff is a bridge too far, uh, I would encourage you, you know, Take a look at it yourself. Go back, read some of these different Masonic works, like uh, the one I was just reading to you, and understand these things are, are very highly uh, regarded by people in positions of power. They have real reasons that they try to leverage these different energies. They know a little something we don't, right? And this has been acknowledged in some of their, their white papers and books and things like that, policy papers. Things like the changing images of man, I bring that one up all the time, where it outright admits right in there that they they will uh, often use mythology and archetypes and, uh, you know, these, these different allegories and types of ideas, these subjective ideas to affect the, the uh, public consciousness because they, they recognize that it does so, uh, even though it's not necessarily an objectively measurable thing in, in many instances. But they, they understand that these influence the human being's perception of what his place is in this world and what this world is. Uh, so that's their attempt. They want to change man's view of himself and what he is and what his place is in this world that we live in and, you know, what his relationship is to it. And and that's essentially what they do through this social engineering uh, that they, they try to always pull off. And this is no different. So I, I just wanted to point that out tonight for everybody. Understand what you're seeing here when you see that political theater. Uh, this is what they're doing. They're trying to make it into a transformative process that will culminate sometime in May 2024. And what that looks like, I can't say. I don't know. Uh, only time will truly tell. Uh, but uh, I saw the pattern and figured I would point it out for the rest of you. And uh, there's a lot more... Uh, really smart people out there that could probably better break this down than myself. Uh, so just take what I put out there and run with it. That's what I would suggest. Uh, go look for yourself. Start researching for yourself. Uh, find the, the different narratives inherent in these things and understand what directions they will go with them. Uh, look at the history of all of this stuff and see how they've utilized similar circumstances in the past and maybe we could understand what they have planned and counter it right that's the important thing so uh you know just recognize this for what it is
So if, if you get nothing else out of tonight's broadcast, understand this whole January 6th thing. It's invoking a uh, an energetic principle uh, to try to leverage this archetype into a state of being here. It's, it's a transformative process. They want to fundamentally transform America into something that we, the common people, are not going to like. That's the bottom line here. Uh, so if you get nothing else from that, understand that's 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 the, the the primary thing to take away from this whole discussion here tonight. Understand that's that's what they're doing. They're utilizing principles that very few people have a basic understanding of in this day and age. They're using these energetic principles to effectuate a significant fundamental change of what America is in the the very near future here. Uh, so understand that, and I would say look for it sometime in May of 2024, around about that time. Anyway, folks, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, that's all I got for tonight. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.
Que foi 